Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheppey. And I'm Donya Williams. It's a wonderful Sunday. <laughs> How you guys doing? <laughs> so thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for sharing your Sunday with us. Donny, do you want to um, say, give a shout out to, to some of the audience? Sure, I do. I do. I want to say hello to Benita and to Dee and um, Myra. They're just from all over, from Virginia, from North Carolina, from Nebraska. We have Michelle. So everybody is just joining us and they're just getting in. I want y'all to get in here because we have a great show for you today. Janice from New Jersey, one of our regulars. Um, we have a great show in Chicago, Deborah. And we're talking to Jimmy today about new Battle of New Markets, but I'm going to let Brian just introduce him. So as Don we are sharing our, our hour with James S. Price, who's the author of The Battle of New Market Heights, which is this wonderful book here. And Jimmy is a Civil War historian. He's also an author. He's a writer who has um, a website with his, his articles on there. And he's also an educator. He, ever since he's been a historian, he's largely focused on the Civil War, um, and specifically the history of African-American soldiers. He's worked for a number of Civil War museums, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, like I said, it is absolutely our pleasure. <laughs> so before we actually get into the, the Battle of New Market Heights, um, I just wanted to spend a little time talking about your career working for the museums. And because they were Civil War museums, and this seems to be seems to be your calling, I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. Um, how well represented were the United States Colored Troop? And as you're watching the video at home, people might refer to them as, as the USCT. How represented were these troops in the museums that you worked for? Well, that kind of changed over time. Uh, so I was. Um, I'm a Pittsburgh native, so I was born in Pittsburgh, so I won't be watching any football today. Uh, <laughs> uh, but my family moved to Richmond or outside of Richmond when I was about five or six. And that was kind of a propitious time because there were a whole bunch of things in play um, that I didn't really consider, but kind of went on to shape my future. So this was right around the time of the 125th anniversary of the Civil War. So they were having a bunch of big reenactments um, close to where I lived. Um, this is right around the time that James McPherson's uh, Battle Cry of Freedom came out, and then eventually, a couple years later, uh, Ken Burns' Civil War, and then the movie Gettysburg. So the Civil War was really kind of a hot topic, and I just kind of fell for it as a you know six or seven year old kid. And living near Richmond, uh, you know, I had all the Richmond battlefields and the uh, Petersburg battlefields to look at. As a kid, tromping along these battlefields, I don't recall ever having any notion at all that there were African-American soldiers involved either at Richmond or Petersburg. I think my, my only exposure to that was the movie Glory, uh, which I remember seeing and loving as a kid. Uh, but when I actually got into the museum field, uh, probably around 2005, 2006, that did slowly begin to change. Um, so I cut my teeth at Richmond National Battlefield as a uh, intern, college intern. That's where I did my internship for my history degree. and. Um, that was the first time I ever heard of the Battle of New Market Heights because uh, Richmond National Battlefield has part of the Chapin's Farm uh, Battlefield under their uh, under their wing, so you, you can go visit Fort Harrison, Fort Gilmer, uh, and places like that. So that was my first exposure to it. 
And it seemed like, uh, you know, 2006 was the opening of uh, the museum at Tredegar. Uh, that museum definitely incorporated the story of the United States Colored Troops in a much larger way. And they actually uh, have a pretty good collection there of artifacts pertaining to USCT. So that was, I'd say around 2005, 2006 with Tredegar, you saw, you saw things start to change, at least uh, in the area that I was working in, which was the Richmond area. So a lot of times um, throughout our four series of genealogy adventures, Donnie and I like to, to talk with our audience about how we're called to do certain kind of work. So a lot of genealogists are, are actually called, or we feel as though we're called by our ancestors to one, find them, two, give them names, and then three, you know, find out as much about their lives and their stories as we possibly can, and then to share them. So to kind of bring them back to life. And I'm getting a sense that historians also have, it's expressed in a different way, but a very similar kind of calling. What do you think, um, how do you, what do you think actually called you to one, being a historian, and two, really kind of drilling down in this, this specific time period? Well, like I said, uh, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by history. I think that's something I kind of got from my parents, but um, the Civil War always kind of loomed large. You know, I definitely, um, I've dabbled in writing about the First World War, but, you know, I kind of always go home uh, to the Civil War. Uh, that's always been kind of uh, my main area of study. And I, I felt at a very early age that I wanted to be a historian in some way, shape, or form. And the way that works now is that um, I do it through education. But um, yeah, I, I, I always felt called to be a historian. I never had any question. Like when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be a history major. Um, I think I, I wanted to be sort of an academic historian, getting a doctorate and all that stuff. But things kind of got in the way of that. Um, may happen still one day. But um, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, for me, it was never really a question of what I was going to be doing. I knew history would be involved in some way, shape, or form. And like I said, I always kind of go back to the Civil War just because I think, you know, those early childhood memories just kind of make it special for me. So before we went live, the, the three of us were chatting about, because um, I had never heard about the Battle of Newmarket until um, I got the book and, um, and began reading it. And you know, we were chatting about how I went online, was looking at YouTube videos on, about the battle. And it was really kind of confusing about who, whether the Union won or whether the Confederacy won, because you're kind of, from what I was seeing, you're kind of seeing both sides kind of claim that. And I think Donnie, had, um, Donnie was gonna pick up the, the subject on that one and ask you a question. Oh, yes, you know, I'm trying to get everything out, <laughs> but... Um... So basically, yes, I wanted to know uh, as far as that was concerned, as how, how did you, what made you get into this particular, what made you choose this group? What made you go to this particular group of, because everybody goes to glory. Everybody goes to the, the 54th. What yeah. made you choose the 10th Corps? Well, um, it kinda, I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, like I said, I worked for Richmond Battlefield for a little while as an um, intern. That was my first exposure to the battle. And then uh, my first kind of full-time uh, museum-type job was with uh, Henrico County. And that's the county in which the battle took place. And this was right on the eve of the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, the, the sesquicentennial. So when I became the... Uh, I think they affectionately referred to me as the Civil War dude for Henrico County. Uh, when I took on that job, 
I kind of encountered New Market Heights again. And that's when I first did my deep dive uh, into the, the history of the battle, because I knew I was going to have to be responsible for interpreting that battle during the sesquicentennial. And that's when it really hit me like, oh my gosh, not only was this uh, a huge battle, one of the biggest battles uh, that African-American troops were involved in, in terms of combat role, uh, but there were also 14 African-American soldiers and two of uh, the white officers that led them that, that received the, the highest honor uh, that the Army can give, the Medal of Honor. Uh, so I kind of scratched my head and was like, why hasn't this gotten more attention? What's like, what is, you know, obviously everybody knows glory in the story of the 54th Massachusetts, but uh, the overall story of the United States Colored Troops, uh, you know, 180,000 men, 10% uh, of the Union Army by the end of the war, uh, that's what kind of caused me to dig deeper. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that I have a blog. I actually started that blog to force myself to learn more about the USCTs, and that's what led to all my research on New Market Heights and my desire to write a book on the subject. Wow. And we will be sharing a link to um, to your blog as well, so our audience can go and they can read and they they can learn more as, as learn more as well. Are you still um, writing on the blog? Do you are you studying another group right now? Well, life has a way of intervening. Uh, let me say interfering. Uh, so yeah, I have lots of lofty aspirations for books and blog posts. And uh, I also have a blog on World War One. Uh, so um, I think it's been a while since I've posted on there. But um, uh, yeah, when I, I think I started the blog in 2009, 2010. And uh, if you look at the early content, a lot, it, initially, it was all dedicated to the US color troops kind of branched out a little bit, but um, so there's a lot of really interesting content on there. And of course, a lot of content on New Market Heights that wound up making its way into the book. So as, as you said, the, the battle went over two days. So we're talking about the 29th to the 30th of September, 1864. Can you talk us through, because as I said, there, there seems to be a bit of contradiction depending on what resource you're reading or what video that you're looking at on, on online about who actually won. And then as a subset of that question, the, the role that this particular group of United States Colored Troop played. Sure. Um, I should warn uh, people that uh, there was a battle that was fought in the Shenandoah Valley in 1864, earlier uh, than the Battle of New Market Heights, called the Battle of New market. And if you know anybody that went to the Virginia Military Institute, they will uh, battle. Uh, it was famous for the Corps of Cadets being deployed in the field of lost shoes. That has nothing to do uh, with this particular battle. Uh, so this particular battle is in uh, September of 1864, and it involves uh, what's called the Army of the James. Um, and it's in the area, what's called the Richmond Petersburg Campaign. So to make a... Uh, a really long and complex story as short as I can. Um, this all begins because in March of 1864, uh, Ulysses S. Grant comes east uh, to take charge of all uh, federal armies. And he devises a plan for a campaign in 1864 that will involve all Union armies putting as much pressure as they can on all Confederate armies that are in the field, no matter where they were. So for Virginia, what that meant was that he was going to make his camp with the Army of the Potomac, the big army that everybody knows about, the fought at Gettysburg and Antietam. Uh, but there was also another smaller force called the Army of the James that he planned to utilize in his attack. And then, of course, there was the army that was in the valley that fought at New Market. 
but the, val uh, the army that was near Richmond was called the Army of the James. And it was commanded by a uh, former Democrat politician who had voted for Jefferson Davis to be the nominee uh, for the uh, presidential ticket in 1860, believe it or not, uh, by the name of Benjamin Butler. And he commanded the smaller Army of the James. And what Grant had envisioned was that this Army of the James would threaten Richmond while he was up north near Fredericksburg, threatening the Army of Northern Virginia. And those two armies in concert were to put as much pressure uh, near the Confederate capital and Confederate supply lines as they possibly could. So this starts off in May of 1864 with the Battle of the Wilderness, what's called the Overland Campaign, uh, up north near Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania. And down south, the Army of the James gets involved in what's called the Bermuda 100 Campaign. And that uh, quickly turns into a fiasco. Grant is able to slowly walk his army all the way down to the, the doorstep of Richmond, where he faces a bloody repulse at a place called Cold Harbor. And from there, what he decides he's going to do is he's going to try to skip south of, of Richmond and threaten the supplies that were coming into the Confederate capital from Petersburg. So that's what brings the armies to the gates of Petersburg. And what Grant quickly decides is that what he wants to do is he wants to have a dual strategy where he can threaten the city of Richmond, north of the James River, uh, while he's also threatening targets uh, south of the Appomattox near Petersburg. Uh, so what's going to happen is you're going to have the Army of the Potomac down near Petersburg threatening that, that vital supply hub. And the Army of the James is going to be uh, in that Bermuda 100 area threatening Richmond. So whenever Grant launches an attack, uh, he will launch an attack simultaneously against Richmond and Petersburg at the same time, hoping that at least one of the, the two prongs of the attack will succeed. So he tries that in July. Uh, there's... Um, it's called the First Battle of Deep Bottom, which I also wrote a book about. That's the action north of the James. The action south of the James that coincides with that is the infamous Battle of the Crater, which we can talk about a little bit later, where uh, U.S. colored troops were heavily involved. That effort failed. He tries again in August uh, at the Battle of Second Deep Bottom, and which is going to be also an attack against Petersburg. Fails again. Uh, and finally, by September of 1864, he was toying with the idea of doing another one of these uh, double-enders, as they would call it, uh, where he received uh, inf intelligence information that Robert E. Lee had weakened his lines by sending more troops to the Shenandoah Valley. So that's how the whole thing comes together. And what Grant does is he meets with Benjamin Butler and he says, listen, I need you to th threaten Richmond while Meade and the Army of the Potomac threaten uh, Petersburg and try to cut off Lee's supply line at the South Side Railroad. That's what set up, that's what sets up the overall, what's called Grant's fifth offensive of the Richmond-Petersburg campaign. Butler uh, is going to take that over, and he's going to be in charge of the effort against Richmond. And you got to keep in mind, you know, the, there was the Battle of the Crater, which I mentioned earlier, which heavily involved the United States color troops. That effort was a failure, and the convenient target to blame for that failure was the United States color troops. So, the African-American soldiers that fought at the Battle of the Crater were unjustly accused um, of you know, being the reason that that attack failed. There were a whole bunch of reasons why that attack failed. And uh, so the U.S. colored troops kind of were in ill repute around this time, the summer of 64. Now, Benjamin Butler had had quite a conversion experience and was actually uh, a proponent of the U.S. colored troops. And his army, the Army of the James, had more USCTs in it than any other army uh, in the Union. So what he did is he decided that the USCTs would lead the attack against the New Market Line, which defended the New Market Road, which is modern-day Route 5, east of Richmond. 
So he made sure that on the morning of September 29th, 1864, all of the troops going up against that Confederate position were USCTs, and he wanted to see if they could redeem their reputation. So I'm imagining these 83 men must have felt the weight of the world on their shoulders, because obviously they would have been very familiar with the, the Battle of the Crater, probably aware of right. why that had failed, knew the propaganda maybe that was being, being said about that. I mean, do you get a sense of that in the writings about it, about that kind of, I, you can't say the weight of history because they were actually making history at the moment, but the, the weight of that time, do you get a sense that they, that they actually felt that as they were going into it for the attack? Absolutely. So I think it would be helpful to kind of rewind a little bit and give context for the United States Colored Troops and how they came to be. Um, so the, you know, the Bureau of Colored Troops, as it was called, was created in May of 1863 uh, because of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which had a provision for enlisting African-American uh, soldiers and sailors into the Union Army. So for the Army side of things, the Bureau of Colored Troops was responsible for uh, organizing regiments and recruiting African-American soldiers. Now the Confederate Army and the Confederate government viewed this um, with a great amount of anger and suspicion, they viewed it as uh, basically inciting a giant slave insurrection, and that's how they treated it. So the Confederate government is outraged. Um, the Southern people are outraged. You know, they, you got to keep in mind, like John Brown is pretty fresh in their memories, and some people were still alive uh, with Nat Turner, and they thought basically that Lincoln was weaponizing that type of, of behavior and turning their slaves against them. So they dealt with this very harshly, and they said that any African-American uh, captured in Union uniform would be immediately returned to a state of slavery, which was interesting because there were a large contingent of USCTs that were free men from the North and had never been slaves to begin with, and that any white officer in charge, these were the John Browns, so they would be dealt with uh, by, you know, by killing them on the spot. That was the official Confederate policy. It didn't always work out that way, a lot of times what happened, and this is what happened at the crater, was that the Confederates were so enraged at the sight of a black man in uniform that they killed them in the act of surrender. And this would repeat itself, unfortunately, at Newmarket Heights. Now you ask, uh, you know, when they're going into this attack, so that, they know that that's, you know, the type of treatment that they're in for. And um, I actually have a, a quote from a colonel. I have notes prepared here, just in case you... <laughs> need uh, you know, a quote or something like that. But I think this quote really ties into what you asked. This is Colonel Giles Shirtliff. He was a white officer with the uh, 5th United States Colored Troops, which is a regiment that participates at Newmarket Heights. And listen to what he tells his men. This is what he, alleg he alleges that he says right before they go into battle. He says, if you are brave soldiers, the stigma denying you full and equal rights of citizenship shall be swept away and your race forever rescued from the cruel prejudice and oppression which have been upon you from the foundation of the government. So yeah, I mean, I do think that a lot of these men knew uh, what they were getting into. Uh, I have an account from another young officer who talks about the tension when they had just formed up, you know, in the darkness, right before the attack kicked off. Uh, there was a bit of a delay, and he talks about what... Um, what it was like to just stand there thinking about what they were about to get themselves into. Which so I have a... Go ahead, Brian. Okay, well, it's not really a question. It's more of a, more of a observation and a comment, 
which fits in really nicely with what you what you just said, Jimmy. So what I've always kind of gotten a feeling with, and again, we kind of touched on this a little bit with another author, Kevin Levine, that we have on the show, is there is this myth or this belief that Black men would run. As soon as the bullets started flying, they were going to run. There was this myth that they were cowards and that they just weren't up, they just weren't up to the task of being soldiers or fighting. And Donnie and I were talking about this this morning before the show, and I said, I think people fail to realize back then, and I still think that they fail to realize that in these men's minds, for those who had been enslaved, not, not the free men of color, slavery was worse than a bullet. It would have been worse than cannon shrapnel or losing a limb or death. And in a real way, they had nothing to lose. They had nothing left to lose. So I could, you know, I, I guess from that vantage point, I can I can just see them giving everything to to mm -hmm. this endeavor. So the, the, it's interesting the battle of okay. No, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, um, in my research, you know, I, I tell the story of the battle from both sides, and the Confederates, um, their accounts of the battle are very interesting because they fall into different camps. Some of them are like, they just kind of downplay it. They say it wasn't a big deal. Some of them are honest enough to say, you know, we were enraged at the sight of black troops and, you know, we would never surrender to, to a black man. Like one guy actually said that just straight up. Uh, but I did find one account that did talk about how there were like thousands of white troops behind the black troops with bayonets having to prod them forward because they were such natural cowards. And it was just like, mm. come uh. on, dude, like nobody. <laughs> Like he, he was obviously trying to uh, to cover up for the fact that they were um, defeated. They were defeated. defeated. Obviously having it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the Battle of the Crater, I think that's what you called it? Mm -hmm. That particular battle, one of the reasons, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correct, correctly, one of the reasons why it went so badly is because they were not trained. Am I correct? Yeah, they changed the plan at the last minute. Uh, so some of the USCTs that were involved in the attack didn't have the proper training. Uh, but it was just a whole host of, of factors that were well beyond their control um, that led to that failure. And it, was, it had a lot to do with the officers that were in charge. Um, there's right. a famous incident of a, a colonel who was in a, um, a bomb proof, which was like a bunker, uh, getting drunk rather than being out with his men in the attack. So it, there were yeah. a, a host of things that led to that failure, none of which had to do so, with uh, the personal bravery of the U.S. Post. So it, it, it's known that because of glory and, and everybody doing, watching, learning more about the 54th, that they were trained and, and Shaw made sure that they were trained. Were the, were the UST men from um, New, for New Market Heights, were they trained? Because it, it, according to what I, between reading you know, I got your book a little late, so I'm, I was doing both things. And um, it, was, it seemed to me that those that were in the North got a little more training than those in the South. They were just ex-slaves and they, gave them a gun and they said, do the best you can in so many words for certain instances. So for them, yeah. Virginia yeah. being thought of as South, were they trained? They were. Uh, I wouldn't say they were, they had a lot of combat experience under their belts, but I think what you're referring to is uh, regiments like the, the first Kansas and the first South Carolina, the regiments that were kind of organized early in the war. 
kind of illegally against the, the wishes of the War Department prior to emancipation. They, they definitely were, uh, at the beginning, pretty, pretty raw troops. Uh, the troops that were involved in Newmarket Heights had uh, training. Um, they had combat experience to a degree, but it had mostly been in um, kind of raids uh, that were conducted um, near Williamsburg and places like that. A few of them had been in the, involved in the initial attack against Petersburg in June uh, of 1864, and they actually comported themselves very well. Uh, and received a lot of praise for their role in the attack, even though that overall attack failed on, on June 15th. Um, so yeah, they, they definitely had a little bit more, they, they would have considered themselves more seasoned troops uh, by the time, but this was definitely gonna be their first big test uh, in terms of large scale combat. And I found that, um, I realized that as I was doing my, trying to do the little bit of research that I did do, that I kept off the word heights. So I was finding the, the VMI information. Mm -hmm. What was your research and strategy so that, because we do have someone who asked um, a question, which I'll get to you later, um, but what was your research and strategy as far as this was concerned? Where'd you go as far as resources and things of that nature? Well, I was fortunate in that um, there had been a, a book published on the overall Battle of Chaffin's Farm, the overall battle, actually the whole fifth offensive, it, it includes uh, the fighting at Petersburg as well. And it's a book called Richmond Redeemed uh, by Richard Summers, Dick Summers, uh, who uh, was a historian with the US Army for a long time. Unfortunately, he passed away about a year ago. So I had that as a starting point. He devotes an entire chapter to the attack on Newmarket Heights and has a couple of chapters before that talking about the planning. So I, I started my research there and I, I, I knew Dick, uh, he was a, a great guy. Um, and I always joked with him that, that um, his footnotes were longer than my entire book. Uh, so I was, I was very fortunate that he did a little bit of the initial legwork there in terms of mining resources. And since, and I think that book came out in 1983, uh, and from there it was just locating, um, you know, obviously record group 94 um, in the, um, the National Archives. That's the record group in the National Archives that pertains to the U.S. Colored Troops. Uh, so there's a lot of really good information that was kept there. And uh, like I said, I was fortunate in that um, a lot of the men that were there wrote about it afterwards. Now, I had to find it. Uh, so I had to dig through, uh, you know, letters and journals in different state historical societies, different museums, um, and different um, books that had long since gone out of print, newspapers, things of that nature. Uh, but I was lucky in that regard. I was lucky uh, that some of the, the regiments that participated in the battle uh, had had books written about them. So the 4th U.S. Colored Troops, the 6th, the 5th, uh, they all uh, had books uh, written about them. So I was able to kind of use the resources from there. So that's really the first step if you want to, you know, dig into something like this is just gobble up all of the different source materials that's listed in the endnotes of all the books that are published. And then from there, that'll kind of direct your research. And, and that's, that's how I did it. And I was also fortunate that I was still friends with all the staff at Richmond National Battlefield who had, um, and they had compiled um, quite a bit of information on the battle as well from different, uh, different research trips that they had conducted. And I have to say that the end note section of your book, um, just an incredible list of resources. And I'm just really curious, I mean, how long did it take you to research this? Two years. Wow. 
So it was two years of research. And then, you know, at that point, the writing itself didn't take that long, but mm-hmm. it's, it was a lot of work for a small book. <laughs> and I mean, I have to ask, you, you don't have to get into details about the, the final cost of it, but you kind of intimated that you, you know, you had to visit a number of different locations and, you know, different repositories and archives, presumably in numerous states. I mean, how expensive of an endeavor, again, without being specific about the dollar amount, but I, I, I can gather just to You the broke travel. up, Brian. Can you repeat your question? Okay. I can just imagine from the travel and the, the accommodation alone, it, it, it must have had a price tag. <laughs> It did, uh, and that's one of the downsides of uh, being uh, like if you're not a PhD who publishes for a major university press or something like that, then you're going to have to flip the bill. So you know you're paying for uh, the rights to reproduce images in some cases, like I did. Uh, I had to pay for the creation uh, and of all the maps. Uh, those were original maps uh, that were done for the book. Oh, no. uh, and then just kind of the um, that was actually the most expensive part. The uh, the Kind of road trips um that was that was actually the funnest part like for me doing the research is so much fun just getting into the into the archives and pulling out a, a file folder because you never know what you're gonna uh, see when you open up uh, the folder so that did have a price tag but it was also the most fun part but it's also a great way to kind of experience parts of the united states that you may not be familiar with or you may not have actually gone to and I guess my follow-up question to that is how cooperative were a lot of the, the repositories and, and places where these materials were stored? I mean, how cooperative were they? Oh, they were very cooperative. I, did, I didn't run into any, um, any sort of roadblocks. You know, people that, you know, archivists and, you know, librarians who deal um, with people all the time regarding these subject matters, they're, they're there to help you out. They, they understand what it is that you're doing and, I received a lot of really, really good help uh, from a whole bunch of different people that, that, of course, I thanked there at the beginning of the book. Um, definitely was not something I could have done on my own. And that's great. And I, I can imagine from a, from another historian or an archivist point of view, if their area of interest overlaps with yours, they probably talked your ear off. <laughs> yes, yes, that happened quite a bit. <laughs> so um, I want to show a picture to everybody because this is actually a face that we kind of know, people have seen. This is Powhatan Beatty. And Powhatan Beatty was the first sergeant with this particular group. Am I correct? Yes, I'm reading yes. that correctly. Yes. And um, can, can you give them some information on him? Because I found that to be very exciting, the fact that I learned that basically Black men were not supposed to be the lead in anything, but he had to step up. And this was probably one of the reasons why he received the medal. Right. Uh, so, wow, Powhatan Beatty, what, I mean, somebody needs to write a book on him, just him himself. He is an amazing story. If you uh, drive from the city of Richmond out to uh, Verina on Route 5, the historic Newmarket Road, you will cross over the Powhatan Beatty Bridge. Uh, he was actually born a slave near Richmond. Uh, and then escaped later on and uh, eventually found himself in Ohio. And uh, he was there uh, and was involved with um, uh, a unit that kind of formed itself as a result of Lee's invasion of the North in 1863, the Gettysburg campaign. 
that actually it was an all uh, African American um, brigade in, in Ohio that led to the creation of the 5th United States Color Troops, uh, which is one of those regiments that's involved uh, in that second attack at Newmarket Heights. Uh, so he rose through the ranks, um, and uh, what you have happened at Newmarket Heights, and if you look at the citations for all the medals of honor that were given, they're mostly to, to non-commissioned officers, sergeants, um, for either rescuing the, the flag, the, the colors of the regiment, as they were called. There was a national flag and a regimental flag. It was very important to the unit for a number of reasons, but also uh, they received the Medal of Honor for taking over when the white officers uh, were killed or incapacitated. So another aspect of the US color troops is that, you know, this is an experiment with bringing African-Americans into the army in large numbers. So of course, at that time, they think that, well, obviously nobody, no African-American could be an officer. So all the officers are white. Um, so, but, you know, if you read my book, you'll see that some of the white officers that went into the attack were on horseback, which made a very inviting target. So the white officers took really bad casualties very quickly. They were some of the first people to be shot down. And it was the NCOs, like Powhatan Beatty, uh, who had to step up and organize the men, try to keep them going forward in the attack. Uh, and that's what's going to lead to him getting the Medal of Honor. And then he becomes a Shakespearean actor after the war. Yeah. So like I said, you could you could make a movie about him, like just him, like he's, he's an amazing guy. Yeah. I have to admit that that made my heart kind of swell with some pride because it had never even occurred to me that men of color could have even been non-commissioned officers. I mean, commissioned officers yeah. just seemed so surreal to me. But I did, I mean, I, I was when I was reading your book and I saw the first mention of a first sergeant, um, I did, I kind of kind of swelled up a little bit of pride there. So yeah, I there were about a hundred, um, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, say what you were gonna say. Well, I was gonna say, um, uh, there were actually about 100 African-American officers in the Union Army at the end of the war. And it's a really interesting story with Newmarket Heights because Butler wanted to promote people like Beatty and another gentleman that I talk about a lot in the book, Christian Fleetwood. He wanted to promote them to be officers. And he actually put them in for the promotions uh, to lieutenant. And those uh, promotions were shot down by the War Department because they thought nobody was ready for, for an African-American officer. Even so it's they not that they couldn't just kind do of it. They're interesting. That's crazy. So it's not that they couldn't do it. It's just that people weren't ready to, to handle it. Right. And it's funny. I found this uh, photo after I wrote the book. I wish I had this photograph before I wrote the book of Christian Fleetwood, uh, who posed for a picture in 1865 in an officer's uniform. And he's wearing his Medal of Honor. And he's wearing his Butler medal, which is the medal that Butler gave to um, a lot of the USCTs uh, for Newmarket Heights. So he obviously thought he deserved the commission and he wore the uniform, apparently, at least in the photographer's studio, even though he actually didn't get the rank. So pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty entertaining. <laughs> oh, the bonus. So I do have some questions. Are we to go to um, one person, Roseanne Kent? She says that she's looking for more information. So this is more about how to how to research um, USCT. And she says she's looking for more information about Company G, 1st Regiment Heavy Artillery formed in Knoxville, Tennessee. There were three enslaved men um, in Georgia. She wants to know how to go about, you know, basically 
find more information on that company? How would you go about doing that? Uh, well, you know, I, I mentioned the, the National Archives uh, before. That's, for me, that's always my starting point. Obviously, during COVID, um, visiting the National Archives is uh, an issue. So what I would recommend is, as a starting point, um, is there's a website called Fold3. And it's in association with Ancestry.com, but it is a lot of the service records from the National Archives that are digitized. Unfortunately, you do have to pay for it, but if you already have, I think if you already have an Ancestry.com membership, you can access those military records. Uh, so if she's looking for specific individuals, you can actually, there's a, a place on there where you can search Civil War service records, and then you would do it by U.S. Colored Troops. Uh, and then you would just find the regiment and then they have it alphabetized and you can find the service records, the little cards that have the, you know, the basic information for all the soldiers. So I would recommend starting there. Uh, I would also look into the historical societies. Uh, I'm not hundred uh, percent familiar uh, with Tennessee, but um, you know, you never know uh, what's out there. I mean, I was, I was kind of shocked at some of the stuff I found in my research. So yeah, I, I would recommend going to fold three. Uh, and looking into that. And I would also do a Google book search. Like I was amazed at how many books uh, that Google has digitized that are free, that are no longer in print, but you can still access. Uh, I found a lot of, uh, you know, speeches that were uh, given by prominent officers after the war about New Market Heights and stuff like that. So that might be worth a try too. And I'd also suggest trying to find African-American genealogy and historical societies in Tennessee they may also have some more information. Yeah, because yeah, um, she wanted to know, you know, like, uh, how did they learn about the recruitment? And that that's actually just a question overall. I know that some people, um, some like if when I was reading the book and then I saw on the on the thing on the videos that I was looking at, Butler, Benjamin Butler, <laughs> I thought this was awesome what he did when they escaped. He held them on because of a law that had that was going on. Because yeah. let's say yeah. someone ran away from Virginia and Virginia was no longer a part of the union. So because Virginia was no longer a part of the union, they had the right to hold on to these people under this particular law, like um almost like prisoner prisoners of war. And that's how some of them was able to escape and then get into the Union troops. So, I mean, I thought that was just amazing that that's one of the ways, and I think that was one of the ways that he had one of the largest USC, USCT because that's how he was grabbing them. And it actually went throughout the, the Union camp on how to get, how to recruit more black men. Am I correct? Yeah, recruiting was a bit, I mean, as, as soon as the, uh, the Bureau of Colored Troops was established, they started sending recruiters out um, everywhere, really. Um, so you had um, these recruiting agents that would go out and try to sign men up. So what happens, and this can make, this can make research uh, quite a pain and it make it very confusing, is that they would pilfer guys from other states. So not everybody that was in the 54th Massachusetts was from Massachusetts. You had a lot of guys from Pennsylvania and Ohio. Uh, so even though these um, USCT regiments were usually located in a certain state, like the 5th USCT, like I said, is generally 
from Ohio, the sixth is from Maryland, the fourth is from, or the sixth is from uh, Pennsylvania, excuse me, and the fourth is from Maryland. Um, 38th, which is involved in the attack, is mostly Virginia. Uh, but just because they were organized as regiments in those locations doesn't mean that everybody that was in the regiment was from there. You have a lot, there were a lot of, there was a lot of complaining going on of people saying, hey, you're sending recruiters into my state and they're taking all my guys and I can't recruit people into my regiment now because you stole them uh, and stuff like that. So that does make things very difficult. And another thing that uh, I ran into that was really difficult is that, you know, of course, slaves, if they're coming into the Union Army, uh, didn't necessarily have a first and last name. Uh, usually didn't, or if it was the last name, it was the last name associated with their master. So sometimes when they joined, they would change their name. I found if you if you go into the records and look at, just go to the W, if you go in Fold 3 and do research on USCTs, go to W and you will see 35 at least people in one company that were asked their name, realized they didn't really get a name at birth, you know, they didn't have a name that they were referred to and they renamed themselves George Washington. There were so many George Washingtons in the United States <laughs> colored troops, it's almost impossible to figure out wow. who they all were. So, but that can be tricky as well. So yeah, there was a lot of, you know, things to complicate the research. Wow. So then um, I got another person who says, my two times great grandfather was in one of the colored troops out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Do you have any records of the colored, of the colored that were paid to serve for the rich whites? Uh, yeah, there were bounties. Um, I don't have any, uh, if, if they do the research and this is, um, the caveat of doing research on Fold 3 is that not every state's uh, information is on there. So if you want to look into Pennsylvania troops, you got to go to the Pennsylvania Historical Society and look at their records for their troops. Uh, so you can't access Pennsylvania records for, for Fold 3. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there were a lot of uh, what were called bounty men. Um, that, was, that was true across the board. Um, in 1864, because, you know, the war had been dragging on for three years and the North had sustained uh, far more casualties than they had expected. Uh, so they did put in the, the recruiting law that a rich person could pay someone to join the army in their place. Um, and that you usually can find that in their recruiting record. So if they're able to, f to locate the service record for that individual soldier, it should say in there whether or not he was uh, paid a bounty or not. And I just wanted to read a short excerpt from the book. It's on page 11, which is in the preface, and this has to do with Benjamin Butler. Because when I finished the book, I really got a sense that this, was a trans this wasn't just a transformative experience for his troops. It seemed to have been a very transformative experience for him. I just yeah. wanted to read, read a short bit to the audience. So it says, in addition to the veterans themselves, Benjamin Butler did much to promote the heroism of his Black soldiers as well as his role and their rise to prominence. Butler later claimed that after witnessing the bravery of the Black troops and the carnage left in the aftermath of their assault, he swore to himself an oath, and this is a quote from him, an oath which I hope and believe I have kept sacredly, that they and their race should be cared for and protected by me to the extent of my power so long as I lived. And apparently he was true to his word. And it, it appears that he really did advocate for them until the day, the day he died. 
He did. And like I said, that's quite a transformation for him. If you read, uh, you know, if you're just sort of a general Civil War enthusiast and you know anything at all about Benjamin Butler from like the Ken Burns series, you, all you get is kind of the negative. Um, and there's plenty of negative to go around with Ben Butler, to be sure. He's a politician. Uh, so <laughs> there's all sorts of um, interesting stories with him. Um, there was uh, an incident that took place. He was in charge of the federal troops that garrisoned New Orleans in 1862 after that city fell to the Union. And they were having trouble with uh, the ladies of New Orleans harassing Union soldiers. So he published an order that basically said that any Southern woman that was caught mistreating Union soldiers would be treated as a, uh, I think he said, a woman of the night plying her trade. Which was, you know, if you know anything about Southern dignity and Southern honor, that was just an absolute outrage uh, to the, the ladies of New Orleans. And that led to the infamous Butler chamber pot. Somebody had this great industry of uh, creating all these chamber pots with Butler's image on it so that every time you <laughs> use the uh, chamber pot, you'd be using it on Butler. So there's a lot of, I, I just find him endlessly entertaining. Uh, <laughs> that's like, that's and if you go to Tredegar, you go to the museum at Tredegar, they have one, or they used to have one on display when I worked there. That was my favorite artifact. So that um, was a chamber pot? That was the 19th century. That chamber pot with Butler's image there on the bottom. Yeah. So oh that, my that was the 19th century way of being petty. Uh, yeah, be, you can say that. That's beyond but, um, petty. <laughs> <laughs> what I, but he, um, you know, he, you know, like I said, in 1860, he's a diehard Democrat. He wants Jefferson Davis to be president. Yeah. Uh, I found a record of one of those uh, escaped slaves at Fortress Monroe approached him and said, hey, you know, I want to join the army. Where can I join up? And at that point, in 1862, Butler said, well, the army doesn't have any need for, for black men uh, in the army right now. And this guy alleges that his response back to him was, well, you will soon. Um, so I think it was really the, the experience of commanding these men, which really kind of changed his mind. And he did. He wrote a letter to his wife on the night of September 29th, talking about uh, the carnage of the battlefield and how it really moved him. And then his, in his later political career, uh, when he was advocating for, for better rights for African-American citizens, he would always use Newmarket Heights as the example. Because he, he was a big advocate of the Civil Rights Move Act of 1875. Is that right? Correct. And when he was on the floor arguing in favor of that, he uh, he repeated that story of uh, walk, or riding along the battlefield and swearing that oath to himself. Um, he, he repeated that on the floor of Congress, and it, uh, it ignited some, um, a bit of a firestorm, but uh, he, got it, he got into a big back and forth with some, uh, I think it was a congressman from Georgia who was a former Confederate officer, uh, but Butler always got the better of those types by uh, his extreme sarcasm. <laughs> Just, a, just like did. I said, an entertaining guy. Of course it did. That was the, the time. It's so funny how history is, is like really repeating itself because now they're fighting again about having guns on the chamber floors today in yeah. 2021. Yeah. And it's just, you know, just it's just amazing how we sit and we talk about these types of things or we go and we research these types of things and and sure enough, you turn around and you can look at TV and here you are right here looking at it again. And you got 
I think her name was Lauren Bobart. Um, I can't remember what state she represented, but she just lost her communications director because they did not agree with her carrying a gun onto the chamber floor. So he quit. And <laughs> no one is feeling safe and no one, and it's just, it's like this whole thing all over again. They fought on the floor all the time during that time period. And now here we are oh, yeah. coming back oh, yeah. and it's going, it's coming back to that again. And, you know, people need to realize history repeats itself. It might not be exactly the same way, but it is definitely repetitive. And so do politics. And so does politics. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm going to say the other thing. Everybody could benefit from another read of the Civil War. I think that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You will not get any arguments from Donnie and I on that score. No. Um, the other thing that really impressed me about um, Benjamin was that he felt so bad that only 14 of his men got recognized that he actually had, he off his own back and at his own expense, he had more medals made. I can't remember, how many, how many did he actually make? I believe it was a little over 200. Hmm. And he, um, he paid for it out of his own pocket. And the, uh, the medals were made by Tiffany's. Oh, what? Like Antiques Roadshow. Um, if you find one nowadays, please let me know. Uh, there, I've only seen one, maybe two. Uh, I know that the National Museum of the U.S. Army that's just just opened up at Fort Belvoir has one on display, and I think it's um, priceless. Yeah, I mean it's it's something that I, you just know that there's a bunch of them in somebody's attic and they don't know what they have. And they don't know what they have. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, if you go to the Smithsonian Museum of American History, you can see Christian Fleetwood's Medal of Honor. The actual Medal of Honor that he got from New Market Heights is on display. Um, and it arrived at the museum. It was donated by his descendants in the 1940s. Um, and, you know, it's kind of sat in the box for a while until somebody it. realized what it was. Yeah, I, I, I know. Ever, I don't think I would have done that. I don't, I don't think I would have done that. So I'm going to say it's the only New Market Heights Medal of Honor that um, that I know of its location. Oh wow! Out of 200, yeah. wow. <laughs> well, out of the I guess out of the 214 in total, well, the ones that Franklin did himself. I'm sorry, not Franklin. Um, ones but, that ben Benjamin did himself. Other, yeah, yeah. Then the 14 that were awarded. Wow. So. At, at this almost hour-long conversation, I guess, what would be one of the main kind of takeaways you'd like the audience to have, both about the, the USCT and about the USDT's contribution to the Battle of New Market Heights? Well, I think that um, for me, when I started to do the research on U.S. Colored Troops, um, I was amazed at uh, the enormity um, of their contribution. And I kind of felt angry and a little bit off-put that nobody had told me about this before. And this is a, a, this is a story I, I get over and over and over again is, you know, I, I meet people when I'm like signing books or something like that. And they, they keep telling me, I had no idea about the, any of this history. Um, I actually met a, um, a descendant of Edward Radcliffe, who was one of the New Market Heights uh, Medal of Honor recipients met his direct descendant and he said that um, nobody really knew what his great grandfather had done, that his mm. grandmother would talk about how they had someone who was famous 
in the Civil War, but nobody believed her. They thought she was kind of a crazy old woman. Um, mm. And I think that's kind of the, uh, and then I, you know, later to find out that she was right. And, you know, this guy got the Medal of Honor, the highest award, highest decoration for valor that the military has. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was just, you know, I think, um, you know, there were, like I said, they made up 10% of the Union Army by the end of the war. To me, when I started doing all my research on the USCT, to me, they're, they're like the living embodiment of what the war was about in the first place. Um, you know, to me, it's just, if you want to really know what the Civil War was all about, just look at these men and what they did and why they were fighting. And to me, that kind of makes, helps it make much more sense. Um, and, um, you know, for a long time, I would have said that their contributions were unknown. Like, if you look at um, the centennial of the American Civil War in the 1960s, there's virtually nothing that comes out about U.S. colored troops or the contributions of, of Black men in the, the, on the Union side. Uh, by the time of the 1990s, you know, it's really glory that kind of gets that ball rolling. Uh, so that, you know, and that was my first exposure as well. Uh, but I think we've reached a point where people are actually doing a lot of really good uh, research and finding a lot of great things and, and kind of reshuffling the deck in terms of what was important about uh, the American Civil War. So that was one of the hopes I had with writing the book. But, you know, everybody knows Antietam. Everybody knows Gettysburg. But as I argue at the beginning, this is one of, if not the most important Civil War battles for the African-American troops. Um, and that was validated by the numbers of, of the Medals of Honor that were given out to these men. Some people argue that the Medals of Honor were maybe not deserved, that Butler was making a big deal out of it to, to puff himself up. And I'm sure there was an element of that. Uh, but, you know, in the, in the Civil War, the Medal of Honor was the only medal that you could get for valor or anything. And in the 19, early 1900s, the Army um, had finally come up with other medals for valor, like the Distinguished Service Cross and things like that. And what they did is they stood up a board to look at the medals that were given kind of um, superfluously during the war. And they revoked hundreds of medals of honor. Um, but not a single one from Newmarket Heights was revoked. Uh, so I think um, you know, people need to, to pay more attention to that if they're going to make this type of argument that Every single citation is for valor on the field of battle at enormous risk to themselves. Some of the Medal of Honor recipients did die uh, right after the battle. Uh, so, you know, the, the Antietam's and the Gettysburg's, the big battles that everybody knows are important, but I think Newmarket Heights should at least be in the conversation. Uh, you know, it seems like with the USCTs, they either talk about the 54th Mass with glory, or they talk about the crater. And the crater has this element of horror in it because it was this big, ugly, confusing mess with people getting murdered that is ultimately a, a defeat. Well, at Newmarket Heights, you get the other side of that coin with a victory and medals of honor handed out. Uh, and, you know, a lot of eyewitness testimony that I put in my book about how it kind of changed people's minds about whether or not black men could fight. You did. You wrote about it very, very well. And it would be its subject for an entirely other show, but I guess the thing that really annoys and frustrates me is there was still this stubborn myth about black men serving in the US military two and well two to two and a half generations later with World War One. You could you know you could almost lift the objection to black men being in this, you know the either the Union or the Confederate.
participants. You know, they're, you know, they're promised that if they participate, great things will come in the end and they participate, they perform well, and then nothing changes. And that, I mean, that doesn't even begin to get addressed until after World War II. So yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. Well, I just wanna thank you um, for coming onto the show and talking with us and sharing this information. Um, we have had a lot of people who have um, made their comments and definitely said thank you. So again, guys, the name of the book is The Battle of New Market Heights um, and James S. Price. And it can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all of that stuff. Am I correct? So I do want to thank correct. you. And, Go ahead. Yeah, you're welcome. And I, I would uh, be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that um, there's currently an effort underway to get a monument built at the New Market Heights battlefield. Oh. Uh, so uh, I'm a board member of what's called the Battle of New Market Heights Memorial and Education Association. So if you Google battlenewmarketheights.org, it'll take you to the website. We're currently raising funds uh, to put a monument on the actual battlefield. We're obviously with COVID, you know, fundraising isn't going quite how we had hoped. Uh, but we are hoping in the near future to have that battlefield marked in perpetuity uh, by a monument to the Medal of Honor recipients. Well, we ground where it took place. We will definitely add a link to that too. Okay, so next week, guys, we are going to, it's our book club, and you know what book it is. I'm excited. It's The House of Bondage by Victoria Albert. Rock, yes, by Victoria Albert. And um, I hope you guys have been reading it. Remember, you can find it on in our reading room on the genealogiesadventures.net page. And we will be discussing this book. It is an awesome book. Jimmy, I hope you tune in because this book right here, it's a man in this book who actually, I believe, fought in the Civil War. And now I have to go back in the back of the book because he's close to the end and I'm going to get his name and I'm, I'm going to send it to you. <laughs> I need to find okay. out who he is. That's awesome. So um, they, they don't. The thing about this book is they don't give out those names the way we want them to. They don't give out a lot of information, but they but it's true stories. So um, you might want to read it yourself. But again, next week, guys, yeah. the bondage book club, first book club with the genealogy adventures. So we'll see you then. See you next week. Until then, stay healthy and stay safe. Yes. Bye, everybody. <laughs>